Good evening, friends. Uh, welcome to church. Uh, my name is Rowan, and one of the pastors here. And one of the great realities that Xbox has worked out, it's quite profound, it's this. Life is short. It's a true reality, isn't it? We're born, we live, and, and then we die. And that's it. We, we, we kind of got to, if we're going to live life to the full, we need to cram as much as we can into the moment before, the, the, the time between the moment we're born and the moment we die. And the question that everyone faces, everyone, you, me, everyone on this very planet is this, how will we fill our days? What do we do with our life? Well, I want to put it to you tonight that the answer to that question is not play more Xbox. Sorry. If that has broken your world, uh, I'm very sorry about that. But I hope that tonight we will see a far more profound way of living. What are we here for? How, we, how do we measure the usefulness of our life? I want to quote to you uh, one of the great architects of today, Steve Jobs. The late Steve Jobs. This is what he says. For the past 33 years, this is before he died, I've looked in the mirror every morning and asked myself, If today were the last day of my life, would I want to do what I'm about to do today? If today were the last day of my life, would I want to do what I'm about to do today? It's kind of a helpful question in some ways. It's a helpful question to think, what am I going to do with my days? It has at its heart, what do we do with the life that we have? But I think it falls short in two areas. Number one, it falls short in this. It falls short in the idea that this is all there is. That what I do here and now is all there is. If I'm going to make a difference to the world around us, a contribution to society, or create something new and novel, then I've got to do it now. That's the only way I find my identity. The second mistake I think it makes is this, that that the measure of success is ourselves. We measure what life to the full looks like. Did you see it? If today were the last day of my life, what would I want would would I want to do what I'm about to do today? It's all about him. I think Steve Jobs kind of lines up the view that our world has that life is measured by what we want to do, what we want to achieve here and now. What I can do that is the best. But I want to put forward for us tonight an alternative view. A view that I think is far more profound, far more lasting, far more satisfying and far more dependable. And trusting in me and my view of what life is and trying to cram everything into the here and now. And it's this. The future God offers shapes the present I am in today. The future God offers needs to shape the present that I'm in today. That's why Paul starts this last section of his letter, his last word to his young protege, Timothy, describing the coming reality, the future beyond the grave. Have a look with me at 4 verse 1. I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead, and because of his appearing and his kingdom. It's kind of his loaded statement at the start. He's, He's charging Paul solemnly. He's saying, Paul, this is the way to live. This is what to think about. His solemn charge is based on three certainties. If you're going to write them down, three short little points that will happen here. Number one, the certainty of the return of Jesus. 
The certainty of the return of Jesus. As he starts this section, Paul says to Timothy, this is, this is what will happen. Jesus, the man who, who died on that Roman cross, who lived for you, is coming back. That's what it means by his appearing. Jesus will come back. He is coming back. Not just in a dream or a vision or coming back in the, in the minds of people remembering Jesus, but he is coming back bodily. Jesus will return. Listen to what Paul says in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4, 14. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. What is your view of the future? What do you think will happen in the days to come? Are you expecting the man from Nazareth, who's been the most influential man on the face of the planet, Jesus Christ, to return? Paul is saying that picture, that future, has to shape the way you live now, Timothy. For Jesus is coming back. Jesus said it multiple times. Paul's view of life is based on the certainty of Jesus' return. Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, number two, he'll come back to judge the living and the dead. It's number one, the certainty of the return of Jesus. Number two, the judgment of the living and the dead. Jesus comes back, not just as a, oh, cool, he's come back to visit for a while. He comes back as the one who will judge. Now, that idea of judge, we hate that idea. Who wants to be judgmental, right? No one wants to be judgmental, except when you get to be the judge and you can say it to others and you get to walk away with it, right? We kind of like that. We like the power. But here, Jesus is coming back to weigh up, to judge how the living and the dead, everyone who has ever lived, have treated God. Have we treated him as he deserved? Have we treated God as God? Or have we put ourselves in God's place and said, look, you know, I want to choose my life. I want to live my way. I want to be angry when I'm angry. I don't, I don't like your way of living. I don't really care that much for you. No offense. Romans 3 tells us that all of us will need to give an account to God and will be judged by our works, by our actions. And God has seen all. He knows all. He knows the thoughts that have gone through your head and mine, the things that we've done, the things that we haven't done that we should have done. But Romans 3 tells us that everyone will be found guilty. You, me, your neighbor, Mother Teresa, Adolf Hitler, all of us guilty. The reality of the judgment of the living and the dead changes what Paul says and how he lives and what he passes on to Timothy. The third thing in the future that shapes the way he lives is this, the reality of the kingdom of God. The reality of the kingdom of God. Jesus will return, he will return to judge and he will return to bring in God's kingdom. This is not just some idea of a kingdom or some weird game that you move pieces around a board or play cards and some king wins. I don't know. This is, this is a picture of the, the real king. The king over all. The one that God has raised to be the ruler over everything. That everything was made by him and for him and through him. He is coming back and his kingdom will begin. Well, it's already begun. But we'll see it. The Bible calls it inaugurated. 
We'll see it actually happening now, not just where people are part of it by trusting in Christ, but Christ comes back, Jesus comes back ruling. All things will be put right, death will be defeated, sin will be put away with, those who've rejected God will be away, not part of this kingdom. We'll be under judgment, separated from God's goodness, getting exactly what we've asked for. We don't want God in our life, he says, okay. But Jesus comes back to bring in this kingdom where people will be under the king, the one who will be ruling and that king will be Jesus. That is the future. Is that your future? Is that what motivates the way you think about life? The reality of the return of Jesus, the reality of judgment and the reality of the kingdom of God that will reign and rule forever. Paul says to Timothy, that future should shape the way you live, Timothy. Uni Church, that future should shape the way we live, what we think about, what matters. If you're here tonight and you're checking out the things of God, you're kind of working out, is Jesus the real deal? I want to be really clear with you. What the Bible is saying is this, you will die as will I. We will face judgment. Well, Jesus will come back. We'll die or he'll come back. We will face judgment for what we've done. And God's kingdom will start. And the only way that we can be part of that kingdom that lasts forever is to trust the one who died in our place, Jesus. To trust that king now, to put our life in his hands. I've got to ask you tonight, is Jesus your king? Is he the one that rules your life? The one that shapes the way you live and what you live for? Is he the one that you you want to serve with your everything because of what he's done and who he is? Or is he some nice guy, a kind of moral teacher? I want to play with you tonight, not because of anything that happens for me, but for you. Come and see who this Jesus is. Come and put your life in his hands. What's holding you back? This is the future. By all means, check it out. Look at the claims of him. Did he really rise from the dead? But by, please do not run away from the claim that Jesus determines your future. When we live with the future in sight, it changes what the most important thing in life is. The most important thing. What is the most important thing for me to do in that Xbox moment? What do I do with my life given this future reality? Verse 2. Proclaim the message, Timothy. Proclaim the message. Persist in it, whether convenient or not. Rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience and teaching. Proclaim the message. That's what life is about. That's what we're here for. That's what we exist for. That people might hear this news of Jesus and come and trust him. To to set forth the news of what Jesus has done. That's what proclaiming means, telling people about it. You know, when you, when you kind of, maybe many of you have had children, but when you have a child, you kind of want to walk out. Have you seen The Lion King? Who's, who's seen The Lion King? Come on. Yeah, great. You know that moment, they kind of walk out and the, the monkey guy kind of holds up Simba and he's like, Simba. And it's like, I pronounce. You're like, that's a proclamation. Right? There's cool music. It's, this is Simba. This is the new king to come. Well, if we've been captured by the news of who Jesus is and what he's done, if we've recognized the future, then we will proclaim this message that we can have life, that the King is coming, 
He's coming back and he's paid the price for us. Proclaim the message, the death and resurrection of Jesus in our place. His real return, his kingdom that he will bring it in. The world we live in is just so full of messages. There are messages coming at us from every kind of place on earth. We drive down the highway and people are telling me to go buy cosmetics that make my face look better. They're saying all sorts of things. They're like, I need sushi. Have you seen how many like St. Pierre's sushi signs there are around everywhere? And I drive along and I'm like, man, I feel like sushi. I had sushi for lunch today. It was great. Not from St. Pierre's though. They were too far away. There are all sorts of messages coming at us. Uh, Messages about kind of what life is about. They're kind of taglines of hope if you look at them. If you eat this sushi, your belly will be full and your life will be better. That's what it says when you kind of see that, right? Or if, if you invest in this bank, we will make your life brilliant. We will look after your money really well. We have really smiley customer service. And that, this is great. This is what you want. Or if you come to this university, you get a way better job than everyone else. Like, that's what it says at Massey. And you want to go there, right? Because it's great. Well done, Ethan. <laughs> yeah. Paul is saying to Timothy, there is no other message than this. Proclaim the news of who Jesus is and that he is coming back. With all of your, da- with all of your days, with all of your time, with who you are, proclaim this message. What Paul points out to Timothy needs to be a reminder for us here about what we are about, what needs to be done. He says to Timothy, and we looked at it last week about the way the word of God works as we proclaim it. He says, rebuke, encourage, correct with patience and teaching. Hold out what I've told you, this sound doctrine of truth. That's what you need to be about. That's what we need to be about. That's what we need to be doing with our families, holding out this news of Jesus and how great he is. With our neighbors, with our, with our colleagues. Would you be doing it in, in, in just one-to-one conversations, if that's the sort of the way we do it? Or maybe, maybe chatting with other people as it comes up in conversation, maybe chatting about it in our classes. It might be standing up in front of even bigger groups of people and, and proclaiming it at conferences or in, in churches. Whatever we do, we need to be about the sending out of the news of Jesus. Now, we're all gifted differently. Not everyone is the kind of upfront words person, and thank God for that, Right? Imagine that, if everyone had to get as many words in every day as I do. It'd be horrible. Introverts would die across the world because everyone is speaking so much. There are different ways that God has made us. He's given us different abilities and skills and passions, but he's given us all of those for the same purpose, that people might know Jesus, that they might trust in him and recognize that his return is coming. So maybe you are a preacher. Maybe you do have an ability to be able to proclaim the news of Jesus in that upfront way. Maybe that is you. And I want to say, think through if that's you. Think through if that's what you want to be using your life to do. But maybe for you, you don't, you're not that kind of person at the moment. And so maybe for you, you could be a prayer. Someone that's so committed to this news going out that you, you spend your time in prayer. You come before God regularly. Lord, please help my friends to see what you've done for them. Father, give me opportunities to talk. Give others opportunities to talk. Please, Lord, bring this person to explain Christianity and help them to see this news of who you are and what you've done and what the future holds. Devote yourself to prayer. 
Or perhaps for you, you're someone that's more like a, a partner, where you're saying, look, I, I'm not great at that upfront stuff. I, I can pray, yep. But look, I really love helping to do the kind of set up and pack up stuff. And I'm like, how does that really fit in? Or what about welcoming at the door of church or, or serving by serving others in other ways? But you think through, why do we set up and pack up stuff at church? I'll tell you why we do it. So that people might hear the news of Jesus. That's why we call our setup team the pack and save team. We call them that so that packing up and setting up so that people might be saved. Right? That's, that's what's going on. We do that for that reason because people need to hear the news of who Jesus is and what he has done. You may not be a preacher, but you can be a prayer. You can be a partner serving with the skills and gifts you've been given or just to keep the alliteration going. Or you can be a patron. And what is a patron? A patron is someone that says, God has given me resources, whether it be time or energy or intellect or money. And I'm going to use that to see his gospel go forward. History is littered with unnamed patrons, unknown people that were behind the big preachers. Wesley, Whitfield, um, they all had people behind them that said, we want to give the funds to free you up so that you can proclaim this gospel. And they did. They did do that so that the gospel might go out. They used the funds that they have. And so often, if you're anything like me, you think, yeah, when, I'm, when I've kind of got a job that I get heaps of money, then I'll think through being a patron. Or when I've got heaps of time, like now I'm studying and I'm pretty, I'm pretty tight for time, but when I've finished studying, I'll have all the time in the world. <laughs> if only that were true. It's not. You've got way more time now if you're studying. Um, but we think, oh, we'll do that later. Jesus' return might be tomorrow. We're to use the resources we have, the money we have, the energy we have for the kingdom. Yes, we think wisely about being trained and equipped in other areas, but proclaim the gospel. Proclaim the message. Paul says to Timothy, do this whether it's convenient or not. How often do we kind of not do stuff because it's inconvenient? For me, it's kind of one of the big things that's there. You're like, oh, I don't really want to do that today. I don't really want to get my car serviced and have to pay for a WAF. It's just inconvenient. And so you don't until you realize it's out of kind of, it's out of WAF and I'm going to get it booked. So I'm going to get the ticket. So you've got to go because you're pushed. It's inconvenient, but you have to do it. Uh, there's all sorts of inconveniences, and we use that for such an excuse in so many areas. Oh, you know, now it's just not the right time for me to serve. There's just lots going on in my life. Oh, I really do want to tell people about Jesus, but if I speak up at the moment, I might lose my job. Oh, if, if I kind of uh, tell my mom and dad or, or my family or my cousins or my brothers about what I really believe, if I say what I really think, they're going to hassle me. If I speak up publicly about this view that I have around sexuality that God made male and female for monogamous marriage um, and and that that gender is something that is fixed. That's just not a popular idea. I don't think it's that convenient for me to speak it. Proclaim the message, whether it's convenient or not. I don't know if you know this about me, but one of the things I find hard is actually writing talks. The perfectionist in me wants it to be, to be perfect, and so I kind, of, I kind of push it off a little bit, the final writing part. I find that bit going from, like, I love the time in the Word at the start, working through where things are at, but then when I'm putting it down and bringing it all together, I just find it really hard. It feels like a mountain to climb every week. You're like, man, you've got to put this together, and how do I got to say it carefully, and 
and say it in a way that will help people understand what Jesus is saying. It's hard. To be honest, at times it's inconvenient. At times I'd love to be part of the body where we just get to do other roles, where you're not having that role of having to keep opening up the Word and leading people through it. But the truth is, I can open the Bible. God has given me gifts to be able to explain the Scriptures. So part of the truth I need to hear here is, suck it up, princess. People are going to hell. It's not about your convenience role, and it's not about whether you feel fulfilled in doing this role or not. You walk down the street and you see all these people who don't know Jesus. You go into a shopping center and they, they, they've not heard this news and they need to hear it. And so for me, I will labor. I will serve because I want to see people come to know Jesus. Because our friends, our family, they're so important. Because people in this city, their future depends on them hearing this news and responding to it. And so here I stand. I want to say at this moment, I really am thankful for the partnership of this church. It's not like, oh, it's just Rowan. Rowan doesn't say anything Rowan says is pretty much junk. If it comes from the Bible, it's great. If I'm pointing to this. But one of the things I've, I've loved about being part of Uni Church and Auckland AV, it's been the partnership of people here as we work together as a body. Now, it's not just Rowan or Rowan and Lachlan or Rowan Lachlan and Vanessa and Ming and Angela and those guys and there's some other... Li- no, we're together. We're a team. We're a team to see people hear this news of Jesus. We work together in all sorts of different ways. We, we pray for one another. We care for one another. We use the resources that we have. It, is, it really is such a blessing to be part of a team together, serving our God and seeing Him use us for His glory. So be encouraged, church, how great it is to work together. Now, we don't do this because it's convenient. We don't do it because it's comfortable. We do it because people matter. And God deserves to be glorified. But in this task of proclaiming the message, Paul gives Timothy a great warning. There's a warning that comes, a reality that is amongst this life lived. How do I live life? I proclaim the gospel, but there's this warning amongst it. And it comes from one of the most dangerous parts of our body. Now, I want to ask you right now, have a think for a second, then you can call out, what do you think? is the most dangerous part of your body. What do you think is the most dangerous part of your body? Let's, let's hear. Well, you can say of someone else's body. You don't have to say my body. It's my biceps. No. <laughs> <laughs> the brain is the most dangerous part. Okay, others, what else do you reckon? The heart. Okay, others? He's got an active heart. Sorry? The tongue. the tongue. Yes, spiky tongue. Very dangerous watching the tongue. True? Others? The fist, who said that? He's a, he's a fight man, that's awesome. Right? It's danger, right? Dangerous, my fist is dangerous. I could karate chop and, I don't know, do origami. And... Hey, origami is serious, right? You heard the guy? One false move and I'll fold you in half, right? Oh, Rowan. Now, I, I want an honest response to what I'm about to ask you. I want you to put your hand up nice and strong now, as, as long as you weren't at morning church this morning. Um... Who thought the most dangerous part of the body was your ear? Hands up. Oh, really? Oh, you said it. I want to put it to you that Jerry's right. I know. That's worth it, right? First time this year. Brilliant. 
2 Timothy 4, verse 3 and 4. Have a listen. For the time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear something new. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. The thing that can cause you and I to be in hell forever is an itchy ear. It's an ear that seeks to hear what we want to hear, that runs after teaching, that kind of just scratches us in the right place. We're like, ah, that's right. That sounds good. The person who says, look, you can be a Christian. God's forgiven you. That's great. You can sleep with it whoever you want because God made sex and he says whatever he made is good. So just do it however you want to do it. Well, something about that sounds attractive. Our world says that's what real life is. You know, have as many partners as possible. But God's word is saying something different. And, and when we hear that and someone's saying that, it's kind of like a half-truth. Sex is good. God did make sex. It is good. But it's to be used within marriage. But we hear this. Is this true? Could this be right? And maybe I'll just go that way. Or the person that comes along and says, look, the Christian life is the blessed life. Come to know Jesus because you'll live a life of blessing. It will be great. You trust in Jesus and he'll bless you now. He'll make, he'll make all your exam marks go up one. Right? And, and actually, you'll do better in life. You'll have more money. You'll be more popular. And you end up coming to Jesus because, well, he makes life better for you, more comfortable. Not because he is the king who's coming back. Not because he is the only one who has died in your place and he is the judge. We hear these truths and they kind of sound good. Oh, the Christian life, it's okay to just kind of, you know, be a Christian and not go to church. It's true. You can be a Christian and not go to church. Just you won't be a Christian for very long. Because really, the church is where you gather and build one another up. And we live in a world that's trying to pull us apart. And there's so many other messages screaming around us. You don't go to church, you're going to walk away. And so we hear this, it kind of scratches rightly like, oh, church is hard work. It's inconvenient. Sunday night, I'd rather be watching TV. Paul warns Timothy, people, even people in the church, will turn away from the hard realities of Jesus' return. They will turn away from his judgment and his kingdom and will seek a life of fulfillment and hope elsewhere. These teachers, they'll raise up an army of people. They'll multiply their teachers, proclaiming what we want to hear. And people will be saying these things and we'll look around and we'll say, there's so many of them. How can it be that there are so many churches that teach this thing? They can't all be wrong. Surely they must be right. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's kind of right and we're a little bit too harsh on this. Well, there's so many people that believe, you know, their earnest lives, they live good lives. They think, we don't, Jesus isn't the only way to God. What about all the Muslims or the Buddhists or the Hindus? Surely we should be a little bit more inclusive, And we see how many people are saying this and the media spews it forth and we start to think, well, you know, if so many people say it, it must be true. There are so many of them. Our bookshops are filled with alternate realities. Amazon, when you look at the Kindle store, right? They're saying, you you can find there these people who who live for all sorts of different stuff and they say, this is the best thing ever. There are people that find, you know, dog grooming. If you get a dog and you groom it well, your life will be zen. Imagine every hair on that dog, just the right length. You know, what's, the, what's this? The, there's the whole thing of living now in a cutback life. What do you got? Minimalism, is that right? 
And it's this, this lady, it's like, throw it all out. Each day you kind of, you, you, you make these clothes and you look at, it's awesome. You, you look at your clothes, you fold them up. Has people seen this? And, and you look at your clothes and you say, what hope do you bring me? Or something like that. And if it doesn't bring you any hope, you, you then pass it on to someone else and you live a fulfilled life because throwing out clothes or giving them to other people and having less stuff makes you live a better life. And they're coming from everywhere. Do not let your ear lead you away from the reality that Jesus is coming back. Do not let that itch be scratched by something else that you want to hear rather than the reality that Jesus is the only way to God. He made you. He loves you. He has died for you. Do not walk away. When you read this, when you hear what Paul is telling Timothy to do is he is he mans up and kind of leads this church that he's in. It makes me wonder, what do you think others thought about the church Timothy was leading? Do you think they went, oh, this, this is probably a popular church. Like Timothy is here rebuking, correcting, training, speaking the, the truth, even when it's hard, even when it's inconvenient. Do you think people are coming along going, man, I want to come. This is so great because, you know, I get so uplifted and the chairs are real comfy and, you know, I get, I get a great, great, worship time at the front, they sing great music, it's like a free rock concert, it's great. Do you think they were saying that? Do you think this was a church that was comfortable? The church that Paul was encouraging Timothy to, to run? No, this is a church that people were rebuked and challenged, corrected, encouraged, yes, about what God has done, but this gospel message was the heart of all they did. The judgment of God was the reality that was coming. The hope of his kingdom was what they lived for. This was a church that was so captivated by Jesus that convenience wasn't an issue. But the souls of those in the church and around that city was what drove them. And the glory of God was what they lived for. Do you reckon the local government liked that church? Do you think in the first century, they're kind of like, yeah, this is great. You guys should do more of these church things. We think it fits in well with our hope for the community. No! They're like, get lost, we hate you, you're living in an alternate reality. Do you think the society in general thought, you know what, that church over there, they're doing a good thing for our culture. No. Where did we get it in our head that the church should be viewed positively by the world around us? Why do we think that? That's not what he's saying here. He's saying we're to preach this message, proclaim the truth. Jesus is king, that is what we live for. It's a profoundly countercultural church. It's a mission outfit made to share the news of the kingdom and help people not live for what the rest of the world lives for, but to live for God's glory and the sharing of the message of the kingdom of God. Friends, we are to be that church. We are to be the people that are so captured by Jesus' return and what he's done for us that we live for him, not letting our ears lead us to hell. So Paul tells Timothy in verse 5. But as for you, Timothy, be serious about everything. Stop mucking around. Endure hardship. Suck it up, princess. Right? Do the work of an evangelist. Share the news of Jesus. Fulfill your ministry. Quite a powerful line, that fulfill your ministry. You were created, Timothy, to serve God, to use everything God had given you for his purposes. Fulfill it. That's what I'm telling to you, Timothy. Fulfill it. I need to hear this. I need to hear Paul tell Timothy to do what God has made him to do. 
Rowan, in the face of temptation, in the face of ease and comfort and convenience, fulfill your ministry. Be who God has made you to be. Uni Church. In the face of temptation and ease and comfort and convenience, be who God has made you to be. Fulfill your ministry. Stop mucking around with things in life that are going to pull us aside and live for Him with what matters. Live in light of the future. Look at verse 6 to 8. And listen to the way Paul describes the goal of his life with this different horizon. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time for my departure is close. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. There's reserved for me in the future the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. Paul's life is driven around the future. He he cares about that future, about that finishing line, about that prize. That's what he lives for. In 1998, I was in... My last year of high school, so you can do the maths, 36, save your time. Um, five friends and I decided to go in this um, cycling race. It went from Sydney, uh, kind of the central part of Sydney, to the next major city, Wollongong. Um, it's about just under 100 k's. And we thought we'd go in, we'd have, have a go at this race, we'd try and get the team prizes kind of quickly, all of us getting across the line. And so we, we'd done some training and, and off we went. And I remember this race. It was just such a, a great time. We're all there together. There's kind of this camaraderie. We're like, yeah, we're going to do this. And I remember there was just great moments of joy. Remember, you ride down through this national park area that's kind of all downhill, which is the easiest riding ever, right? The wind's in your face and you kind of, you open your mouth and it flaps in the breeze. You're like, oh, right? it's so easy to go fast. And you're like, this is great. There's birds around. You're thinking, this is the cycling life, right? And, but the problem is then you've got to go up the other side. And it's like, there's a huge hills along the coastline like this. And I'm like, God, take me now. Like, my legs are on fire. This is hurting. I've been riding for a long time. We want to get there and it kind of hurt. Uh, there are times when pain happened. I remember this one bit. We're, we're riding along down this, this kind of main highway section. It was all um, corridored off for, for this race. So we're riding along in a pack. And uh, I said to one of my mates, the guys who were riding with me, I said, I'm passing on your left. And he wasn't the best with, with kind of left and right. And so as I went to come through, he moved and clipped my front wheel. It caught it and I went flying into the bushes on the side of the road. Thankfully not on all the tar. Scraped my leg, there was a bit of blood. Like it hurt. But the memory that I have most in that whole kind of time was coming around the corner and seeing the last hundred meters before the finishing line. There's kind of people up the sides. There we are. There's this kind of, we went first by any stretch. But, you know, we're there and there's, there's people there and we, we, they're kind of cheering, going, go, go. And you felt like an Olympian. And you're kind of like, and you cross the line. And you're like, I did it. I actually made this. I'm still alive. And like, here we are. I finished the race. Paul says this, lift your eyes, Timothy, to the eternal horizon to that finish line of the return of Jesus, when all things are put right, when death is dealt with, when he comes back and his kingdom goes on forever. That is to be your focus, your hope, your joy, your goal. Fight the good fight. Run the race. 
Keep the faith. And that's exactly what Paul has done. Right at this moment, Paul, when it says he's about to depart, he's not in the airport departure lounge. He's in prison. He's about to be executed. This is not like, oh, awesome. You know, Paul, I'm riding from the Qantas lounge, frequent flyer place. I've got the Qantas pen or the Air New Zealand one. Sorry. Um, he's, He's in prison. He's looking down the barrel of death. How would you be at that point? Imagine yourself sitting in a prison, knowing you're about to die. You've just poured out your whole life, done everything to tell people about Jesus. You're about to die. How would you feel? Depressed? Angry? Frustrated? What is life like? Why have I done all this stuff? Why is it ending this way? God, are you here? What is going on? Life sucks. Paul's not like that at all. He's not depressed. He's not scared. He's not angry. He's expectant. Because he has waiting for him a crown, a prize, something that is so valuable that it's worth living for above everything else. What is it? It's a crown of righteousness. Now, righteousness is just a big fancy Bible word for being right. The crown is that he will be declared right with God. That righteousness comes not because of what he has done, because he fought the good fight, he ran the race because he was so good at it. No, the righteousness comes because Jesus died in his place as the perfect son of God. Jesus lived the perfect life that none of us could ever have lived. And when he died on that cross, he offered us his life so that when God looks at us, he sees him and not me. What is waiting for Paul is not judgment like he deserves, but God saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. My son, welcome home. Come into the new kingdom on earth where Jesus will rule forever in right relationship with me and his people. To live forever, that crown of righteousness because of Jesus. What an amazing God we have. No wonder Paul was free to run the race. See, sometimes we think because that has been given by nothing that we've done that we can just kind of slack off. We can sit back on 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 the cruise ship. And just let everything go well. I love church. It's all great. I don't have to live hard because it's all been done by Jesus. But Paul doesn't respond that way. The security that Jesus has offered him, his righteousness, means Paul's free to fight because he can't lose. He's free to run the race and do the best he can because what can anyone take from him when he's already got the crown of righteousness that will be given to him after death because of Jesus? Friends, you see how free we are if we trust in Jesus. What is the worst that will do to us? We could be sitting in prison, looking down the barrel of death and still be saying, take me home. <laughs> Paul then, in the next section of his letter, if you're freaking out about the time, we're going to be three minutes in this bit. I kid you not. He then lays out five quick implications for what this gospel-centered life looks like. You'll see them pretty much there. He lays out what the gospel-centered life looks like. What does it look like? Show me what it looks like to live with that future in mind and letting it shape the present. Number one, he shows us the importance of relationships. He says at the end of the letter, Greek Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. He talks about all these people that he had relationship with. See, the Christian life is the life of relationships, relationship with God and relationships with others. We need to live lives where we care about others. He felt the pain when people deserted him. He felt loved when when people came and and brought him his cloak. 
What does it tell us? The Christian life is a life that is invested in friendships, invested in church, invested in connect group, even if it hurts. We also see the certainty of justice. The gospel-shaped life banks on the certainty of justice. Alexander the coppersmith did him great harm. But Paul says the Lord will repay him. Paul doesn't say, and I will get him back. I am making it my life's goal to return the harm Alexander the coppersmith gave to me. I'm going to make him pay. No, Paul said, God is the judge. God will repay him. God's justice will be even stronger than mine. So when I feel so angry at the injustices of this world, I can trust the God who will judge. But I also must remember, he will and should judge me. Which is why the gospel-shaped life recognizes the necessity of forgiveness, number three. The necessity of forgiveness for us. That's why Paul is encouraging Timothy to proclaim this news. We need to forgive because we've been forgiven. The only reason Paul can escape the judgment of God is because Christ has paid the price for him. But it also lives that idea of forgiveness out with others as well. You kind of see it in these relationships. So here you've got him asking for Mark to come back. Verse 11. It's a tiny little verse, but have a look at it. Bring Mark with you, for he is useful for me in the ministry. Now we read that and we're like, oh, what's that got to do with it? Well, in Acts chapter 15, Paul and Mark had a big falling out. Paul and Mark were on this gospel mission together. They were in it together. And then Mark decides to bail on Paul. He's like, he leaves him on his mission. He goes away, goes somewhere else and walks away from the gospel mission. And you're like, what has gone on there? Well, what's happened here is that, firstly, Paul has forgiven Mark. Paul has said he wants him to come back. He's useful in ministry. Paul doesn't hold this bitter, bitter grudge against him. He's like, you're now, you've got it. Second thing it shows you is that growth is possible. Just because we have once failed, because we have done dumb things, because we have hurt others as we have served, doesn't rule us out for the rest of our lives. That God's grace and forgiveness can be shown to us and we come back to be useful. Fourthly, the gospel-shaped life banks on the promise of the presence of God. Paul is there alone in his cell. Verse 16 of chapter 4, at my first defense, no one stood by me. He's gone up to, to, to kind of speak and no one stood by him. Everyone deserted me. Imagine that. You have a defense against the emperor and no, no one is for you. They've all just deserted him. You suck, you're gone. We don't care about you. How are you going to feel at that point? But he says, may it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the proclamation might be fully made through me and the Gentiles might hear. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Do you ever feel deserted? Do you ever feel tired in your, in your aims to see the gospel go out? Do you feel like friends don't come or you're always pouring out your life and no one returns the favor? No one calls you and asks you how you're going? Friends, Paul reminds us that God is by our side. He is determining our plans. He is working out the steps. He is with us. The future is secure. And fifth, the gospel-shaped life is shaped by the power of the eternal future. Our picture of God's future shapes how we live in the present. Paul's view of the future is that he is not scared of death. He's secure in God's rescue from evil. Listen to verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil work and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory 
forever and ever. Amen. Paul's future shapes how he lives. What is the gospel-centered life? How are we to live? As Paul writes this letter to Timothy, what are we to take away as his people? It's this. Follow the example of Paul. For I am already being poured out, verse 6, as a drink offering. And the time for my departure is close. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. But there is reserved for me in the future the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. Who are those that have loved his appearing? They are those that are longing for and looking forward to the day that Jesus comes back because he is their king. At this moment, Paul is talking about you. He has you in mind. And what he is saying to you is, do you see my example? Do you see what I've done? Do you see the way I've lived? Do you see the way the picture of the future changes the way I live now? Uni Church, fight the good fight. Finish the race. Keep the faith. Pour out your life as a drink offering. Because God has reserved for those who trust Jesus the crown of Jesus' righteousness. Forgiven sinner forever. Relationship with me in my kingdom forever. When we understand what we have been offered, pouring out our lives, giving everything so that others may hear the news of Jesus and that God's name might be glorified, is no inconvenience. It is the world's greatest privilege. Let's pray. Father, we are so, so thankful. We are thankful that you have come and made yourself known. We are thankful that in the midst of struggles and trials and hardship, you promised to be with us. We are thankful that we are not the king of this world, but that Jesus is. And that he has died in our place, he has offered us forgiveness, and that he is coming back to judge, and that at that judgment, those of us that trust in you will be found forgiven, clothed in his righteousness alone. So we ask that you would help us to do all we can with the skills, the gifts, the abilities that you've given us to proclaim the gospel, to together as your church here at Uni Church work so that people might hear the hope of who you are and what you've done. Father, challenge us, rebuke us, bring us out of our comfort, pull us back from following our itchy ears to things that we want to hear and do, and let us pour out our lives for your sake. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. If nothing of our efforts could survive, the only thing that we would then turn and say to one another that would bring great joy and hope is this. That Jesus has done it all. That he is the one that we serve. That's what this next song talks about. Let's stand and remind one another that tomorrow's gain is found in serving Jesus. Let's sing.